elected to Congress, and he's also the first African-American to represent the great state of Minnesota. He's a graduate of the University of Minnesota Law School, and it was during his law school years that he converted to Islam. After earning his law degree in Minneapolis, he served uh, in a law firm there, and primarily as a community services advocate and a legal rights activist. He's married and the father of four children. During his three years in Washington, he has assisted the State Department's outreach effort aimed at improving the image of the United States in the Muslim world. He's made a number of trips to the Middle East, and on one visit to Saudi Arabia, he's reported to have said, quote, he hoped his presence as a Muslim in the delegation conveyed a message to the Israelis and Palestinians that people can come together, reconciliation is possible, unquote. You will recall yesterday the comment by Mr. Peter Robertson, who was chair of the Ambassador's Roundtable. He said, quote, not many politicians are willing to get up and talk about the positives in Saudi Arabia, unquote. I would expand that to include virtually all of the Arab countries of the Middle East. Congressman Ellison is the exception. Please join me in welcoming him. Admiral, thank you for that very warm introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, let me uh, greet you, Alan Wasalan. Sabah uh, al Welcome. Good morning. It's good to see everybody. It's certainly a, a real pleasure to be here. And let me just thank you for the work that you're doing at this very important conference. I think one of the most essential relationships that we need to build is the relationship between the United States and the uh, Arab-speaking world. It's central to the security, economic viability, prosperity for so many people around the world, and the time and attention you're spending on this subject will yield great dividends, uh, and, I, and I thank you and congratulate you for doing it. Let me also uh, uh, thank uh, Admiral uh, Bernson for, for welcoming me and for helping to help uh, lead this session today. Uh, I am an admirer of his and appreciate the work that he has spent uh, over the years uh, promoting not only security uh, for the United States, but also uh, health around the world. Um, I noted with interest uh, his role as Board of Trustees for Physicians for Peace. Uh, and I think as we talk about the U.S.-Arab bilateral relationship, it's really important to remember that global health should and must be an important part of our dialogue. Uh, health does have important economic implications, and I think that we should bear in mind that there's a lot uh, that each uh, society can learn from the other and, uh, and can contribute to the other on this front. And let me also just tell you this. Um, I uh, uh, have taken a very strong interest in uh, building bilateral business relationship because I think that it is an avenue to build a more fully-fleshed comprehensive relationship. Uh, last year, I uh, was able to accompany 11 Minnesota companies to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, where we had uh, an excellent number of days uh, visiting, visiting the country. We started out in Jeddah, 
and we met there with the business community in Jeddah. And then we went to Riyadh and uh, went and, and visited the, the business community there, several businesses uh, that were, were welcomed, welcomed us with great uh, graciousness and, and courtesy. And then several of the other businesses went to the eastern provinces and visited some of the economic cities that are being built right now uh, in the kingdom. And uh, nearly everyone who was on the trip, not nearly everyone, everyone, uh, remarked about the tremendous hospitality, uh, the graciousness, and the importance uh, with which they were, they were, they felt they were accorded. Uh, and we made, we heard, we learned a lot, and we also shared a lot. But one of the things that we learned, and I think this can be said not only for the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, but for the Arab world in a larger focus, is that many of our Saudi hosts told us that, look, you know, um, the United States uh, and the Arab world have a long history. It was Americans who helped to develop the oil industry in Saudi Arabia. While the Brits were not going straight for uh, the, the issue of development, it was Americans who helped develop that industry that has made and helped to make Saudi Arabia into an energy superpower in the world we live in today. And so the relationship is longstanding, and it's been productive, and it's been helpful. Uh, many of them remarked and showed me photographs of how uh, Roosevelt uh, sat uh, and spoke with uh, King Abdulaziz and how this is a long part of the history, and it's something that we should not ignore and something we should bear in mind. But then they remarked that when 9-11 occurred, the United States took a step back and other countries took a step forward. France, England, uh, China, other nations filled that void as we withdrew. And they welcomed us back. They said it's time for us to strengthen, renew, and rebind the ties between us. And it's time to do that in a way that's better than it was before. Before our relationship was built on economic relationships in large part and security, but it was focused on energy issues. What if we could look at a new relationship that was more fully fleshed, that had dimensions involving manufacturing, involving energy, of course, but also involving services, healthcare delivery, also involving construction, and also technology. The fact is, the Arab world has a burgeoning youth population. They need jobs, they need employment, they need prosperity, they need opportunity. And of course, this last 18 months has shown the United States that how interconnected this world is, and while you may have a recession in the United States and you're not selling much here, perhaps foreign markets might offer an opportunity to move product and continue, maintain prosperity there. So we're interconnected, we're tight, we're tightly wound together, and we should embrace this, and I think this is an excellent time and an excellent session to really pursue that. I wanna let you know that we're now working on, and, and, and the prospects are very good, for us to have a delegation of Saudi business people who will come to Minnesota in December. <laughs> I don't know if you know what that means. <laughs> But uh, they deserve credit for bravery. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, you know, what, as I joke, I want you to know that um, Saudis have been coming to Minnesota for years. They go to the Mayo Clinic and, uh, and, and, and are familiar with uh, Rochester and Minneapolis. And so it's not as far-fetched as it may seem. But we've got to continue 
to build these bilateral relationships. I think on, on, a, on a national basis here in Washington is important, but also let's not forget our states and our local communities. Why not? I mean, one of the observations that Saudis made to us is that, look, you know, yes, we uh, have been well endowed uh, uh, and, and, and have been able to do well. We've had safe investments. We didn't invest in mortgage-backed securities so much, so we kept some of our money that uh, other people lost over the last uh, uh, several months. And we're continuing on with our construction projects in our, in our, in our building. But um, you should know that our water resources are so precious to us that we are considering using it more for domestic consumption than for build, growing grains. And so, why not have a conversation about, why not have a conversation with Midwest farmers, with uh, the Middle East as a, as a whole? There are, why not Iowa, Minnesota, New York, California? Why not have state, encourage states and local communities uh, build relationships? that I think will be lasting. I think it's important to understand that the relationships need to be built on the micro and on the macro. I will also tell you that in the Middle East, whether you're talking about Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, or any country, they know more about us than we know, more, than we know about them. I sat down uh, next to a friend who was dressed in traditional uh, Saudi garb, uh, which to them is a business suit, but for us, it's, it's new. It's uh, not familiar in, in, in the United States. And he asked me how the Vikings were doing. He asked me whether he, whether, whether he thought that uh, Peterson was going to run 1,000 yards this year. He asked me, uh, what, about, what about Brett Favre? Is, is he really coming to the Vikings? And, and, I, and I was embarrassed because I wanted to ask him a question about Saudi soccer or basketball or something. And I, I found myself wanting in that area. We have to build our body of knowledge about each other. On the micro level, on the global level, we have to work hard to understand each other better. And I think business is an excellent way to do that. You and I both know that politics can be combustible. Politics are areas where we debate. I, I work in a building where all we do is argue about politics all the time. But Business is something you can come to a meeting of the minds on because when you do a business deal, what you're saying is this thing helps me and it helps you. And we wouldn't do it unless those two things were true. And so this is a point of agreement, a point of coming together that we should start with but absolutely not end with. We need to work on the visa issues. I've had too many Saudi friends and friends from other parts of the Arab world. Forgive me for dwelling too much on Saudi Arabia, but that's where most of my experience lies. Um, but they've complained to me, look, you know, I've, I've, I've come to the United States many times, and I, just, it, I, I haven't been able to travel as freely as I could in the past, and what can we do about this? And I think that's a valid point, and I think all of us need to bear that in mind and work on it. We've had, uh, we've had these things, other things that are important to understand. We need student-to-student -student exchanges. Saudi students have, have been increasing their numbers more recently, but the fact is that they're not as high as they used to be. And this is something that we need to work on as well because it's important for us to have students go both ways because it builds students on both ways. Now, I've talked longer than I plan to. This is one of the subjects that I'm passionate about, so please forgive me. 
But I just want to say that the work that you're work doing here is incredibly important. I honor and respect you for doing it. Please come down to the Hill and tell other members about the important work that you're doing. I will do the same. And inshallah, we will get to a point where we have a better, stronger, more comprehensive relationship than we've ever had. Good luck and uh, good doing business out there. Thank you very much. Thank you for those uh, comments, Congressman. Recently, I've noted that uh, there's a new organization on the block, a new lobbying organization, and it's called J Street. It's a Jewish-American organization. It, uh, its primary focus is to achieve a two-state solution in the Middle East, a win-win for both Israelis and Palestinians. Its lobbying efforts are in direct opposition to APAC. And uh, a number of us were wondering if J Street is being heard on the Hill and if their influence is uh, sufficient to do what they're trying to do. Did you comment? Yeah, let me say that uh, I am a, uh, I accepted and proudly wear the endorsement of J Street. Uh, I think they're an excellent organization and they're wildly popular. Uh, they're showing up, they're working with people in a constructive way. Uh, I will also say that uh, I think it's important to remember that uh, for so many years, APAC had uh, basically dominated the field when it came to the pro-Israel community in the United States. And without uh, the alternative voice, um, I think that they um, were, were not required to expand their, their reach. And I think that what you'll see in the coming, coming uh, years and months is that you'll even see APAC begin to uh, soften its tone because it has had to acknowledge that there is a large number, there, there are a large number of Jewish Americans who are pro-Israel but who want peace and want reconciliation. And if you only talk to those people who are focused only on issues of security and only on issues of uh, the national ascendancy of the state of Israel and aren't looking at Israel as a member of a global village, as a member of a region, um, then they will lose market share. And so I think you will begin to see, uh, because of the work of J Street, uh, a, 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 a general um, softening of the APAC position. I hope that's true. Uh, and I, because I think ultimately uh, people in the world want peace. That's what people want because when you have peace you can do business, you can do artistic creation, you can do all kinds of activity that uh, human beings uh, like to engage in uh, and in the context of that uh, strict um, sort of uh, adversarial competitive relationship you, you really just can't do those things. Uh, obviously, if you've ever been to Israel, you know that the debate around the way forward is robust and vibrant. Uh, and people offer all kinds of viewpoints on what should be done. That level of freedom uh, simply isn't present in the United States, in large part uh, because uh, uh, people who have strictly focused on security issues have been able to dominate the conversation. 
But I'll say that I, I am in communication with APAC, talk to them all the time. They're in my office yesterday. They live in my district. And as a member of Congress representing them, I have a responsibility to be in dialogue with them. Uh, but I think that when they, when they talk, they'll tell you that, yeah, we want peace, but we don't know if we can risk peace because we have to be concerned about security. And I hope that JPAC will, J Street, will allow them to, um, will allow them to have that confidence to, to take that risk on peace that they, um, I think, are, are somewhat associated with not taking. So thank you for the question. Congressman, I have uh, several questions uh, playing off of your interest in law and having been on the Judiciary Committee and leaving that to be on the financial services as well as consumer credit uh, subcommittees. Uh, and in light of uh, both of those there, one uh, in terms of uh, the, the rule of law, uh, coming here this morning in a taxi, uh, a driver was uh, uh, from Ghana and he's been here 20 years and he said when he was eight years old, his 87-year-old grandmother who had never been here said, you're going to America and that's where your life will be. And she said, but you need to know two things, that the United States is modernized but not necessarily equally civilized. The United States is a nation of laws, but not equally a nation of, of justice. And uh, linking and segueing to that with regard to the U.S. Constitution, and our president was a specialist in constitutional law, he taught constitutional law. Article 6 of the United States Constitution posits that international law and treaties to which the United States is a signatory is superior to federally enacted legislation. And so we link here to the United Nations Charter. The United States is a member of the United Nations, a founding member, the host founding member, uh, as a matter of treaty. Uh, secondly, the United States and Israel were two of the countries in the forefront pushing for the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 with regard to the obligations and responsibilities of an occupying power to the occupied uh, people there. And the United States also was in the forefront of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. These three uh, uh, stand out in terms of yesterday's discussions by more than a few of the speakers here with regard to the Arab-Israeli conflict. As a member of Congress, how do you and your colleagues address these constitutional issues, these legal issues, linked as they are to notions of elemental justice and peace? Well, um, I'm a candid person, so I'm going to continue to be candid right now. Um, we really don't discuss those issues uh, in that way very often. Quite frankly, uh, that I think that what you, simp what you laid out is a body of knowledge that is not necessarily yet on the tip of the tongues of the average member of Congress. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's important for you to know because as you uh, continue to work towards a, uh, a, a, an acceptable or perhaps mutually unacceptable uh, solution, focusing on the term solution, uh, that you should know that when you speak to a member of Congress about uh, resolution of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, talk about UN Charter, Declaration of Human Rights, and things like this, you will have to do some educating. Uh, this is important for you to be aware of. You should not walk into a member's office, sit down, and start 
talking about, well, of course you're familiar with the human, you know, the human rights declaration. Not necessarily. Now, I wouldn't recommend talking in a condescending way, but I would say that you should come in with some very tight bullet points, focusing on the points that you want to make, and be ready to do a little bit of educating. And you should uh, be able to not only identify and cite the body of law that you're referring to, but also give some policy justification for it. Why is it a good idea that we have a universal declaration of human rights, and how is it implicated in this situation? I have said, and I will say here, that I think that it is a good thing for the United States to urge Israel to face the Goldstone Report in a forthright manner and fully participate uh, in the resolution of these issues. Uh, the United States has had challenges over the years. We've had to grapple with issues uh, involving Guantanamo Bay, Abu Ghraib. We've had to deal with these issues, may lie. There have been issues in the past. But simply because uh, an unfortunate incident occurs within the context of a nation's history does not mean that that's not a good nation. And we should not be afraid to deal forthrightly with challenges in our own history. And if the United States can say, you know what, we're going to deal with these things. I mean, we've overcome everything from slavery to Jim Crow to women not being able to vote. We've overcome these things. And I believe Israel and every other nation in the world can overcome these things, too. I think the, the question is, you know, are we willing to face these things? James Baldwin, a great American writer, said, whatever can be faced can be fixed. But if you can't face it, you can't fix it. So I think that it's important right now where there's a resolution being drafted right now in which the, uh, some members want to condemn the Goldstone Report, uh, and I will be voting against that. Uh, and I want you to know about it now because I think it's important to understand that, look, um, Israel could have and should have and should now engage the Goldstone Report process to get its point of view in so that it can clarify what is ever wrong and give justification for whatever action that it took. But, should, but I, I think it was a mistake to say we won't participate in the process, and now that a report has been issued, we're, we're going to condemn it. Look, Richard Goldstone, some people like to say, well, you know, Richard Goldstone, by the way, is a uh, Jewish and identifies himself as a Zionist. That's not his most important credential. His most important credential is that he was a honest judge in South African apartheid. He was a judge who worked out crimes against humanity in Rwanda and Kosovo and did it with distinction and honor. He's an honest man. That is his best credential. And I think that it's a bad idea for the United States to persuade or, or the, the PA leadership to delay or defer. And I think it's a bad idea for the PA to delay or defer. And I think it's a bad idea for uh, the Israelis to say they won't participate. I think we should embrace this thing. Israel should not agree that it did things that it didn't do. And it should clarify things that it believes it's not responsible for. And it should get in there and advocate. But to say we're not going to participate, turn your back, and then condemn the final product, to me, is a very bad way to go. So uh, that's not precisely on the point you asked, but I think it's relevant to the conversation today. Oh, I think it is precisely.
A second question, uh, Congressman, uh, plays off your italicizing, capitalizing, neonizing education uh, and to educate with facts, insight, information, knowledge, and understanding uh, here. Uh, with uh, that as background and context and perspective, the question is, how can one best help the members of Congress move beyond its emotional responses to issues such as uh, Muslim, Arab, terrorist, uh, foreign oil, energy uh, independence, uh, especially when neither the incumbents in public office or the aspirants to public office have leveled with the American people on these issues? Excellent question. Let me say this. If you are put in the position of making decision and you hear from one partisan and you don't hear from the other, and maybe even you're given fundraisers by one partisan, and you don't hear anything from the other, and maybe you are given information and documentation from one side and not the other, who are you going to end up listening to? You understand my question? Who are you going to likely side with at the end of the day? The person who's built a relationship with you, supported you, informed you, or the person you don't hear from that much? And when you do hear from them, they're usually on the TV screen and it doesn't look good. You understand my point? You know, there is absolutely, positively nothing wrong with people who want to uh, help Congress have a better understanding of the complexities and the nuances and the contributions of the Middle East, both historic and present, from walking into the Hart Building, the Rayburn Building, into the Capitol Building itself, and saying, Congressman, I'd just like to share with you a few things. Did you know, you know, the United States was first, the first country to recognize the United States as a fledgling nation was Morocco, an Arab-speaking majority Muslim country? Did you know that one of the first international treaties ever written was with Amman? Did you know that the United States was at the very beginning of the Saudi Arabian oil industry when it began to uh, build uh, its industry and capacity up. Did you know that we've played this role, we've had this historic relationship, and there's no reason why we cannot strengthen and build that relationship again? The, the, but you gotta be in it to win it. You know, you gotta be in it in order to be competitive. And I would just say, we've gotta learn how to lobby. I, I'll, I will assure you that the people who wanna focus on issues of you know, foreign, you hear this phraseology, we're buying oil from dictators who hate us. Yeah, who's ever heard this? Am I the only one who's heard this? Okay. Uh, this kind of um, representation is allowed to go on because no one sits down and says, well, first of all, um, the, you know, we're not making you buy any oil. <laughs> You want it, so you buy it. Second of all, we have a historic relationship. Third of all, um, we are, uh, you know, we, you know the, the level of democracy and human rights and all these things is, is, is increasing, is emerging every day. And if you think that we could be doing better, why don't you encourage us instead of make put-downs? You understand what I'm saying? I mean, there, this is what, but you got to get in there and do that. That's got to happen. And so, you know, I tell you, I'm, I'm encouraged when I hear people, see folks come in from the UAE and want to 
tell me about what's going on there in terms of their energy sector and their green city that they're building. I'm encouraged when people from uh, the Saudi embassy want to explain what's happening there in the economic cities. I'm encouraged when I hear about Qatar playing a leading role in liquefied natural gas. And I mean, these things are all wonderful, but there's got to be much more of it. And I want to tell you one more thing before I uh, leave this question. You know, there are large, large numbers of Arab Americans and Americans who may not be Arab or have any connection to the Middle East, but who care about the region. This is a potentially large lobbying group. And, 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 and this is important because members of Congress respond not first to donors. Let me just be honest with you. There are some who may see the world that way, but most don't. Most members of Congress are concerned about another body of VIPs. They're known as constituents. And if your constituent walks in the door and somebody else walks in the door, let me tell you who's going to be talked to first. Because a constituent can make me Congressman Ellison or the former Congressman Ellison. <laughs> and, and this is something I pay close attention to. And so if you come into my office and you say, oh, we got an appointment at 1 o'clock, and then somebody shows up there, and they're dressed way down, and they're looking bright-eyed, and they're coming to just be tourists in Washington, don't be surprised if I say, oh, excuse me, I'll be right with you. Oh, Ms. Johnson, from across the neighborhood, please come in, because this lady lives in my district, and she can vote me in or vote me out, so she, I'm going to listen. I'm talking to her, right? <laughs> so, 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 but you have a constituent base that you can draw on. And, no ma and, and so when you have a member of Congress who you believe has said some particularly unfriendly and unwelcoming things, you find the people who live in their district and you go have a chat. And then their, their rhetoric will change. It might not change in a blink of an eye, but it will change. And if it doesn't change, I'm sure that there is some aspiring congressperson in, or wants, who wants to be in Congress who lives in that district who would be more than happy to listen to you. Okay. Congressman, is there a facility in your district in Minnesota capable of housing the Guantanamo detainees? Uh, yeah, I think that there, uh, I think that there is. Um, I, I'm a little bit of an outlier on this issue. I believe in Article Three courts. I believe in American justice. This isn't to say that American justice has always been perfect. Obviously, it has not been. But it's the best system of justice that I've been able to identify in this world. And the fact is, I believe the Article III courts are well able to deal with these things. Article III courts dealt with the, uh, the first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. They tried these people. They were given a jury trial. They were given lawyers. And these cases were adjudicated. And there hasn't been any negative repercussion from that. So this idea that this NIMBY thing, not in my backyard. I, don't, I believe that the people in Guantanamo must be charged if there's a basis to charge them. If there's no basis to charge them, I know this sounds incredibly unpopular, but you can't continue to detain somebody unless it's within some military context and there's an active war and they're a combatant and then there are rules regarding that, but then when the conflict is over, they have to be released. But there must, it must be according to law, and there must be a, 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 a due process even within the military context, which I recognize is different from the civil context. But within the civil context, 
if they're if you don't charge them, you gotta let them go. And if you don't, and if you charge them, and you they have to have a lawyer, they have to have a jury, and if they and they have, they have to be sentenced according to law. And this is what I believe is the case. Now I think that this is absolutely essential. There should be more trials. If there's a case to be made, make the case. If there's not, then don't. And I think this is a very important point. You know, the United States is strong enough, robust enough, durable enough to try someone who has violated its law and to issue sanctions or not if they're acquitted. And I think that we should be brave enough to walk into this new area. I'm opposed to this idea that we're going, that I'm not in my backyard. Look, if, some, if, if, if somebody gets sent, I mean, look, they're, 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 the, one of the uh, 1993 World Trade Center um, uh, um, defendants is in Rochester, Minnesota right now. And, and so um, this, is a, this is a very important to bear in mind. So I know that this is not welcome news, but it is my firmly held viewpoint. And, and I really would debate anybody on this point because anyone who says something different from what I'm saying is sort of implying that American justice is not up to this. And I, and I think it is. Thank you. Congressman, the last uh, question draws on your roles in, in terms of Consumer Credit um, Committee and uh, financial services. A year ago, uh, this time, uh, there were almost half a dozen uh, committees in the Congress uh, examining, having hearings on sovereign wealth funds. Right. And uh, not just China, or even mainly or specifically China, but Kuwait, United Arab Emirates, uh, Qatar in a growing way, Saudi Arabia to a degree. Um, as an echo of the late 1970s, when the media would imply that the Arabs are coming, the Arabs are coming, the Arabs are coming, they can buy up Tiffany's overnight. Um, that link to the dollar, the strength of the dollar, the utility of the dollar, the respectability, acceptability of the dollar, uh, being controversial in and of itself. Where do you see the Arab allies, friends, strategic partners of the United States in this financial meltdown that we've had, this economic downturn that we've had? Well, quite frankly, it's been um, it's the, the, how uh, our Arab allies have fared in the financial crisis has been mixed. Saudi Arabia, uh, very... Uh, Conservative portfolio managers really did not get hit as hard as some economies around in the Gulf region. I think uh, everyone knows that Dubai uh, got hit harder, uh, but I hear that things are back in the swing for them. I've heard that uh, Abu Dhabi uh, has, has has fared a little bit better than Dubai. So there's it's been mixed around the around the uh, around the Gulf. I think the GCC countries are robust economies and and they will weather the economic storm uh, and I think their level of financial sophistication is a very high um, turning to the issue of uh, sovereign wealth funds um, look uh, I, I've investigated this issue because I wanted to be well informed of it and I'm one who's not tolerant of anti-Arab anti-Islamic xenophobic attitudes 
So, but I also believe in operating from a point of view of knowledge. So I dug into the sovereign wealth fund issue, and, I, and I'm confident that all of the Gulf countries that have sovereign wealth funds are looking for a return. This is not about trying to buy strategic assets in the United States in order to gain some sort of, uh, of advantage over the United States. Uh, now, I will say this. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true for every country with a sovereign wealth fund. I do think that um, a greater level of transparency and uh, uh, could, could be in, for China and Russian sovereign wealth funds. And, and I'm not trying to pick on China and Russia, but I, but I think that if you're worried about uh, a country gaining a strategic um, advantage over the United States vis-a-vis -a, -vis a sovereign wealth fund, it's not the GCC countries. Um, and uh, anybody who implies such, I'd like to talk with them because I, I think at the bottom of that might be some, some, uh, uh, some, some bias, quite frankly, and some unfounded fear, perhaps. Um, but I do think that, you know, if you look at Norway, for example, they have a sovereign wealth fund. They call it the pension fund. It's not really for pensions. It's just what they do with all their extra North Sea oil money, uh, and uh, it, they, they, they invest it, you know, for a return. They have done a good job at uh, transparency, at making clear what their goals are. By the way, they have goals that are political in nature. For a while, they excluded um, Walmart from um, a, a, its investment portfolio because they were concerned about how workers were treated. That's taking politics into consideration to a certain extent. Nobody complained about the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, but my, but, but, so my point of view is this. Uh, the existence of a sovereign wealth fund stripped away from any kind of cultural context is a nation's way of managing its financial portfolio when it has extra reserves that, and it has to do something with those. If they don't find a way to manage it, it could cause hyperinflation. There could be all kinds of problems, so they have to do something with that money. And why not invest it for the good of the country? But I, uh, but I, you know, I've, I've been to uh, Dubai and I've been to Saudi and I've been to Abu Dhabi and I've asked people at these funds, you know, what, what's, uh, what is your strategic goal? What do you hope to do? What are you trying to achieve? And it's like, look, you know, we're trying to make investments that will benefit our, our population, which is our job as the government of our country. So I think that, uh, I, that, that that's my take on that issue. And, and, and again, I'm confident that GCC countries are looking for a return on investment uh, and, um, and, and really not more than that. And by the way, uh, you know, there are people from the Arab world own large percentages, not large, but significant percentages of 5%, 4.5% in that neighborhood of Citibank, NASDAQ, Caribou Coffee, and the list goes on and on. And guess what? Uh, Citibank is not complaining about that investment. They're probably pretty happy about it. So there we go. Congressman Ellison, uh, thank you very, thank you all, very everybody. much for your candid comments. Terrific.